I want to begin this morning in the book of Ephesians. The elders had been discussing where we might go in a series of sermons, uh, finishing, Pastor John had finished uh, Genesis and finished uh, up in the book of Matthew, and we had been talking about this for a little while, and it was decided that we might, uh, that we would go to the book of Ephesians, and so... uh, it's my time on the preaching cycle, and I get to preach a few sermons at the beginning of this, and it introduced the book, the series, and that, of course, is a diff- to me is a rather a difficult uh, part. How do you introduce a book? How do you get started in a series? And, of course, you need to start somewhere, and you start at the beginning. And if we wanted to... Uh, get to a book that has to do with the life in the church, well, Ephesians certainly is that book. It, it certainly presents a life in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. What I want to do today is I want to approach um, verses 1 and 2, which I'll read in a moment, from what I'll call a historical grammatical uh, position. I want to look at the the historical setting, and something of the grammatical structure of it. And then I want to come back and look at, basically I want to do that verse, look at verse 1 in that, in that way. And then I want to come back <clears throat> and look at the first two verses from a little different perspective. And we'll do that from what I'll call an exegetical practical uh, perspective. But if you would open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. And I'll read in our hearing now verses 1 and 2. Ephesians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, we're grateful for the day that You have given us. We're grateful for the opportunity of of assembling together as Emmanuel Baptist Church. We're thankful for that which has gone before. And we pray now Your mercy, Your blessings, your presence uh, in our midst that you would enable me to declare your word give us ears to hear and give us minds to comprehend wills that are submissive and hearts that are desirous to serve Jesus Christ our Lord and our Savior these things we pray In the blessed name of Jesus, amen. Amen. So we begin with verse 1 in what I'll just simply call a historical grammatical consideration of this verse. And I want to begin with the city and people of Ephesus. Ephesus was known as the gateway to Asia. And of course, we're talking 
about Asia Minor, uh, not China, but we're talking uh, off, off of the Mediterranean, the Aegean Sea. And Ephesus was the most easily accessible city in that part of the world in, in Asia, both by land and by sea. Um, Ephesus was close to the terminus of what would be called the Silk Road or um, the Royal Road. And this was a road that was built by Cyrus, king of Persia, and it originally went from Susa to Sardis, and it became a major thoroughfare uh, for trade uh, from east to west, which would have taken you, uh, well, I think that bottom right shows you that, that major thoroughfare it would take you from east to the west to Greece, and then by sea on into uh, further points. It was uh, Ephesus was situated at the mouth of the Castor River, uh, which is on the uh, Aegean Sea, and it had a harbor that was accessible to the largest ships of its day. In fact, it was a major uh, harbor in the, on the Mediterranean. Ephesus was, as you probably know, developed around Artemis, or some might call her Diana, but that was that was the 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 uh, catalyst really for the development of the city of Ephesus, um, and there was a temple in Ephesus to Artemis. Now we'll talk more about the temple in a moment, but Artemis was a had a tremendous tremendous uh, social impact on this city. Uh, in in this in several ways, one was the women in the city enjoyed rights and privileges that were equal to men, which was very unusual in that day, uh, in that time. And there are records of female artists, sculptors, painters, and teachers in Ephesus. And part of that is uh, because of legend, or due to. Uh, what was legend in the development of Ephesus and the founding of Ephesus, that it was founded by the Amazons. And that was a female warring tribe. They were dominated by these warring females. And that's the history of it. And even later on, some of the priestess in the Temple of Diana or Temple of Artemis would trace, try to trace their lineage back uh, to the Amazons, and they would go into great depths of writing um, a lineage that would trace them back to give them the status uh, as a high priestess in the, in the temple of Artemis or the temple of Diana. And the authority structure of the temple is based on how these Amazon uh, women, how they descended, or how the, the, the women descended from the Amazon women and uh, they enslaved the men around that area to, to build, and they forced them to build the city of Ephesus. So you have this idea of a, of a dominant female structure. And the cult around the, the goddess 
Women are seen as the source of light and life. And there also seems to be from inside this cult a rejection of marriage, sometimes a rejection of bearing children. And so when you read 1 Timothy and you look at chapter 2 and you look at chapter 5, and Paul is talking about women adorning themselves in proper apparel and bearing children and the right relation in the home, you put that in the context, this is the historical grammatical I'm talking about, you put that in the context, he's writing to Timothy who is in Ephesus. And you understand, oh, you've got this context that you're dealing with. Now the temple of Artemis was the first temple that was built entirely of marble. And you can see a a mock of it on the top right hand corner. It had 127 columns. And those columns were 60 feet tall and they were four feet in diameter. And you think about that and you start to think about what this represents. And then you think about 1 Timothy 3.15. The church of the living God is the pillar and buttress of truth. It's almost a, a direct response, if you would, because Paul is here. And this is here. And it's got all of these columns, all of these pillars, all of these buttresses. Representing life and light. And here's Paul. The church of the living God is the pillar and buttress of truth. Again, the historical grammatical setting as we begin to think about it. This is the largest Greek temple of its time. It's bigger than a football field by some several feet. It's 425 feet long. It's 220 feet wide. It's over 60 feet tall. Obviously, the pillars are 60 feet tall. It was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And it had a tremendous financial impact on Ephesus. It brought commercial, a commerce I should say, and it brought great wealth into to Ephesus. It served as a museum. Uh, some of the best statuary and some of the most beautiful paintings were hung and preserved in the temple. And because of its strength and its and it was it was sacrosanct, you just it was it was protected. Uh, people stored their money there, and in fact, it became the world's largest bank in the ancient world because it was considered so safe and you just hands off. It was also a sanctuary for criminals. No one could be arrested for any crime whatsoever when they were within bowshot of the walls of the temple. So around the temple, there sprung up a tent city of sorts uh, of all types of, of criminals where they made their home. It was a, a city of refuge where they would flee to. 
if they could get there, no matter their crime, and they were within bow shot, hands off. The temple directly employed priest and priestess, and indirectly many other industries uh, find their livelihood through the temple. Now there's debate about the priestess, are they involved in um, prostitution or not? Some writers say yes, some writers say no. By the time of Paul, it's illegal in the Roman Empire. And so you have, uh, you have conflicting um, uh, reports and, and uh, scholars dif differ on that. But whatever that story may have been, the truth is you had all kinds of uh, different types of crafts that make their living from this. It's, it's a tremendous um, money draw. Pilgrims and merchants travel to Ephesus from everywhere. Vendors and art, uh, 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 artists sell their wares. And that, if you'll turn to Acts, Acts chapter 19, will lead to a great confrontation between Paul and actually Demetrius. He's not so much with Paul, but it's just with the Christians. And certainly Paul's involved. <coughs> In Acts 19, in fact, you may just want to, I'll do the same thing, just kind of mark that spot in your Bible. Verse 23, about that time there arose no small dis uh, disturbance concerning the way for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is a danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all of Asia and the world worship. And of course, it starts a great tumult and it leads to a matter of a, of a riot. And you see this theater down here on the bottom left, and eventually... Uh, it's, it's understood that this is where they end up going. It seats about 25,000 people. It's one of the largest of its day. And that's uh, where they end up having this great dispute. And finally, finally, a city official will bring it to a close, saying that they're in danger of bringing the Romans down on their head because of their actions, and they need to stop because they want to really do harm to the Christians at that point in Ephesus because their trade has been disrupted, is in danger of um, really suffering loss. Back to the Bible study lesson about truth and when truth is spoken. <coughs> Excuse me. Ephesus was also a cultural, as you can imagine, because of 
some of the things I've already said about it, but Ephesus was also a cultural and intellectual center. Ephesus was a, a wealthy center, a wealthy city. It had gymnasiums, theaters, a triumphal arch. It had a world-class library, several temples, a public baths. It had latrines. It had the upper-class homes, had these uh, beautiful frescoes, some of which you can still see today. Uh, it had a lot, this, this stadium. It was a... Uh, that's basically unheard of in its time. And people from all over visited and lived in Ephesus. And some of the most brilliant and talented people of that day came and lived in Ephesus. It was a center of learning. Uh, Hipponax, the poet, was there. Uh, Perhasius, a painter, was here. Apellus and Alexander, who were famous orators, were here. They had schools of rhetoric here. Uh, Ephesus is the birthplace and home of one of the philosophers. It was a pre-Socratic philosopher, but when I took philosophy years ago, I always, always enjoyed him, Heraclitus. And uh, he had this, this quote that I always found interesting, that no man ever steps in the same river twice, for it's not the same river and he's not the same man. Well, this is the home of Heraclitus, and he's Ephesus. In Acts 19, turn back over at 19 for a moment, Paul is teaching in Ephesus. He goes into the synagogue, verse 8, and he's there for three months. He spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But, this is verse 9, but when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, um, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And so he leaves the synagogue, and he uh, begins teaching in the school of Tyrannus. Now, uh, some some old manuscripts add that he that Paul taught there from the fifth hour to the tenth hour, and that would be from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. And so that would would match with Greek culture. That uh, Tyrannus would teach his pupils in the in the uh, in the early morning uh, when it was uh, cooler. And that's what most would do. They would work in the morning when it was cooler. But, but, um, and then they would take the time off, a long lunch and a siesta. But the assumption is that that's when Paul would be working with his hands, making a tent, tents. And then when they finished that, they leased the same hall. And he and his students would go in and they would study for five hours. And... Um, this made an impression. Well, it's from Ephesus. It becomes this very important center of Christianity. And like a flood, the gospel is pouring out throughout all of Asia. And some of the men that are involved are Epaphras and Tychicus and Trophimus and Philemon and Archippus, and they're carrying the gospel, and they're fellow workers and soldiers with Paul. 
and the gospel's going out. But everything's not lovely in Ephesus. Ephesus was the capital of slave trade in all of the Roman Empire. Slaves from Asia Minor and Syria are brought to the slave market at Ephesus. And here husbands and wives and mothers and children are separated and they're sold. And most of the slaves go to Rome, but not all of them. Many of the inhabitants of Ephesus are in fact slaves. Uh, Many labor at the docks or in the warehouses because this is a major port and they have ships coming and going and land vessels bringing in wares to go and both across the sea and then back into land. And the way they exchange that is by slave labor. However, many of the slaves are professionals, doctors, teachers, lawyers, philosophers. And Ephesus has its slums, just like any large city today. The affluence of the upper class do not reach down, did not reach down to the average working person. And because Ephesus is located on a river, the mouth of a river, down by the sea, and it's coming down from the mountains to a valley. It's a low-lying area. Disease is rampant. And there's a constant threat. They deal with malaria, encephalitis, smallpox. And these diseases periodically just decimate the city. A large percentage of mothers die in childbirth. Infant mortality rates through the roof. And basically there, there are no medicines to speak of. And the best painkiller is wine. And sometimes it's the best medicine. Take a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thy often infirmity. So we turn from the city, the people, to the epistle. You read about Paul coming to Ephesus in Acts 18 through 1921, and this is at the end of his second missionary journey. And it's just a brief stopover. He's just there for just a brief period of time. They want him to stay, but he will not stay at that point. He has to go on. And he finishes his journey, goes, loops back into Antioch, and then he almost immediately leaves. And in Acts 19, um, he comes back out, and Apollos is leaving. He's, Apollos has been in Ephesus. He's leaving, and Paul is, uh, and Apollos goes to Corinth, and Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. That's Acts 19.1. And this records really Paul's long period in Ephesus. 
And so he comes to Ephesus and he spends at the end it says he was there for, you know for a full two years. But you add everything up, he's he's probably in Ephesus two and a half years, some even say three years. This is his longest period of time anywhere. And I'm, I'm going a little different way than I thought originally, but when you start to think about Ephesus, you think about the people that are in Ephesus who go there. Apollos was there. Priscilla and Aquila were there. Uh, Timothy was there. The Apostle John was there. And Christ sent them an epistle. And Paul, we have this epistle. And you think of of the rich heritage this place has. I mean, gracious. Did they ever have the gospel opened up to them? And then you read in Revelation 2 the epistle of Christ to them. And you go, I wonder what happened. I mean, they had the gospel just poured over them. And yet, their end is, you know, why? But anyhow. So Paul goes there on his third missionary journey. And he leaves. And when he leaves here, he'll go to Jerusalem. And then in Jerusalem, they will threaten to kill him. And he'll be taken to Caesarea. And he'll be detained in Caesarea. This is in Acts 21. And then if you look at Acts 24 for just a moment, 24 verse 27. And then in Caesarea, he'll be detained. And he'll be there two years. When two years had elapsed, so he's, he's detained in Caesarea for two years. And after he leaves Caesarea, uh, he'll be sent to Rome. And then if you'll turn to Acts 28, verse um, 28, verse 30, Acts 28, verse 30. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So he's in Rome for two years. So some five years or so, maybe longer, he's been gone from Ephesus, maybe some say even up to ten years. He writes the epistle back to these people. Now, Ephesians is called one of the four prison epistles, Ephesians, Colossians, uh, uh, Philippians, and Philemon. So he writes this epistle from prison. If you look at uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul writes, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. He says the same thing in chapter 4, verse 1, chapter 6, um, I think verse 20. So he's been gone for some several years. He's been in prison just about 
that entire time. And he writes this book back. And he's written from Rome while he's under house arrest. And he gives it to a, a good trusted friend that was there with him in Ephesus to take it back to the people. And it appears that it's written, if you look at chapter 2, verse 11, it appears that it's written primarily to Gentiles. He says in chapter 2, verse 11, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And you have other references that are similar to that in the book. So it seems primarily written to Gentiles. So we have that general information about the book of, of, uh, of Ephesians. Now, turn back to chapter 1 and look at that second clause in verse 1 and then we come to the textual challenges which is going to take us into the meat of where we want to go. And that is, to whom is this epistle written? And you say, well, that's simple enough. It's written to the saints who are in Ephesus. Because it says to the saints who are in Ephesus. But the problem is, in the oldest manuscripts, in the three oldest Greek manuscripts, the words in Ephesus are not there. And there is a lot of debate about who the book is written to. And a lot of scholars will say it's a basically a circular letter. It may even be that one to the Laodiceans. But it's the circular letter. And not only because that is not there in the three oldest Greek manuscripts, but also Paul spends, if it's just two years, but it's longer than that, he spends at least two and a half years in Ephesus. There are no personal greetings in this book. If I read Romans 16, Paul lists people by name he lists at least 26 people in Romans 16. Greet this person, this person, this person, this person, this person. There's not one other than the carrier of the book listed in Ephesians. And if you look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, um, he, Paul writes, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith, in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, it's almost like he's never met them and doesn't know them. I've heard of your faith. And then you look at chapter 3, verse 1, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given for you, assuming that you've heard of this, Paul spent time there teaching them. Again, it's almost like I don't really know. So based on those 
reasons, some say it's not really, we don't really know. It's probably a letter that was a general letter that was written and the secretary would write in who it was to. But you know what? And this will be my transitional thought. It, if, it's, if, it's, if it's written to the Ephesians or if it's, if it's a general letter, it really doesn't matter. Because most cities in Rome, in the Roman Empire, were similar. And most churches faced the same situations. The culture, the world, the condition of the unbeliever's heart, whether it was in Rome or, or Corinth or Ephesus or in Jerusalem, or whether it's in Atlanta, or whether it's in Washington, or whether it's in Jessup, or Brunswick, or Blackshear, or Glenville, are all the same. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter if it was 2,000 years ago, or if it's today. Because the heart of the unbeliever is the same. And that's described in Ephesians 2, 1-3, that you were dead in trespasses and sins. And not only that, since the above is true, that that's the condition, then the gods made with hands, be it silver statues or stacks of silver in my safe, or better laws or health care for everybody, or higher wages or more education, will not resolve the problems, a society's problems. Because they are no gods at all. And these no gods at all do not address humanity's basic needs. And there also seems to be a notion then and a notion now that troubles, problems, and sins can be addressed like a sunburn. That you address it topically. That you relieve suffering and poverty. That you, that you, that you help the condition by addressing it outwardly by improving the environment, by providing a free education or paying a reparations or recognizing a gay's marriage. Or you fix a broken home or a marriage by teaching sex education. But humanity's problems and society's problems are not outwardly, they're not topical. They're inward. They're heart issues. We're dead in sin. I don't need new clothes. I need a new heart. We're slaves of sinful passions. We don't need new laws. I need to be set free. By nature, I'm a child of wrath. I don't need just to be um, a free child care. I need a new nature. We don't need no gods. We need the true and living God. We need grace and peace from God. We need the Savior. And churches and believers need the same thing. Which takes me then to the exegetical and practical view as we loop back around now and look at it one more time, a little bit quicker, but in a different light. Verse 1, the author, Paul, an apostle. 
Now, an apostle, the word apostle is used in the New Testament to describe either the twelve that Jesus called. It can be used in a broad sense, a broader sense of a messenger like Barnabas or James, the Lord's brother, or Apollos. But overwhelmingly, it's used of the twelve that Jesus called. So Paul identifies himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus. And by doing that, he is claiming the same title that Christ gave the twelve. And what does that mean? That means that this message of this book is Christ's message. It means that, this, that Paul's authority is the same as Christ's authority. And it means that he is a messenger fully authorized and sent by Christ. He says he's Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul did not volunteer for that. He did not seize this position for himself. He was not appointed or nominated by men, not even by the church. Even though he came through the church at Antioch, they sent him. But he was divinely chosen, prepared, and commissioned according to God's will. Therefore, what he is writing is not his personal opinion, but it's the will of God. Sometimes people say, I'd like to know what the will of God is. Here it is. What we read here are not simply the words of fallible men or even those of a gifted teacher, but of the apostle of Jesus Christ. They are a written expression of the will of God. In other words, obedience is not optional. God's word will not return to him void, but they will accomplish his purpose. Hearing is not neutral. I don't just hear God's word in a neutral way. It's either to my salvation or to my damnation. Secondly, we notice the recipients are described in three ways. They're to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So they are to the saints, to the holy ones, to the hagios. Now that's a term, saints is a term that's misunderstood. It's probably been hijacked. In some tradition, a saint has to be nominated. They have to be, they, to, to be nominated or to be approved as a saint, you have to go on trial. And you have to be, it has to be proven that you've uh, performed at least one miracle. And uh, you have to establish the worthiness of the person. And then if you pass all of these tests, then that person can be a saint. And usually the world thinks of a saint the same way, that that person is a very worthy person. But the, the word saint means to be set apart, and it's God who sets apart. Not the world or you or me. The antecedent to the saint is found in the Old Testament. It's was Israel. Israel was God's holy people. God set them apart. In Leviticus 11.45 we read, For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Yet therefore you shall be holy, for I am holy. Well, Christians are God's holy people. 
They're chosen. They're brought into the new relation with the Lord. God sets us apart. He sets us apart for His service. We're in a peculiar community with God's people. And then next, we're, def- we're defined, the Christian is defined as those who are faithful. Now in the King James, this is translated to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful. It almost sounds like a different group of people. But it's not a different group. It's just finding one group to the saints that are they're faithful people. Then the question is, is that active or passive? Are faithful people, does it mean they're trusting in and having faith for Christ or does it mean they're being trustworthy? Is it a noun or a verb? And I think the answer is yes. It's both. It's a noun and a verb. And then th- and thirdly, a saint is a person who dwells in two places. To the saints who are in Ephesus or wherever they are there and are in Christ Jesus. You live in two places. We live in the, the world, wherever, and we live in Christ. And this is the source of a lot of our problems. And they cause us a lot of tension. Because sometimes we can't fully seem to figure out where we live. If I'm in the world or if I'm in Christ. Because the world allures. It's got its temples and its goddesses. Or if I'm in Christ. And therein lies the rub. And this is often where we fall down. Lloyd Jones writes that this is not a letter addressed to some unusual and exceptional Christian people. And everything the Apostle says here about Christians and members of churches must be equally true of us. We have here what we may call the irreducible minimum of what constitutes a Christian. And then we have the doxology. Whether we be in Ephesus or Corinth or Bethlehem or Atlanta or Savannah or Jessup, we are in the world and we are to live for God. And how do we do that? By grace. And peace. How do we remain faithful? By the grace of God and peace from God. John Stott writes that the letter focuses on what God did through the historical work of Jesus Christ and does through His Spirit today in order to build his new society in the midst of the old.
And don't we need that grace of God, that active grace that saves us and brings us peace with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So, to the saints of EBC, you who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would have mercy upon us. Thank you for calling us, for saving us, for your active grace in delivering us, and that we can be reconciled to you through Christ our Lord and have that peace that passeth all understanding. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn, please, to hymn 391. This will be in the hymns of grace. 391 in the hymns of grace. We'll stand together and sing. I think we sing uh, all the verses in the chorus after the last stanza only. <laughs>